sure I get sleep. So that's what I totally did. She's totally right. So I kind of tossed and turned on that, making sure I never slept on my back so she could have some good sleep tonight. So I'm tired. I've had about three or four hours of sleep. Yeah. First of all, you guys who've been to camp with me, do I not give 30 minutes for you to go to bed? I gave Joy like 30 minutes to an hour to get to bed before I go to bed. I don't make no minds about my snoring. It's bad. It's bad. And even the people who go to camp with me, I tell them, I give you 30 minutes before I go out. And, and if you keep talking, that's on you. Because once I go to sleep, I'm not going to feel guilty at all. <laughs> the church Ephesus. Man, we're, we're winding down. We're coming to the end of this. And, and truthfully, like, there's, so, there's been so much doctrine, really, uh, in the first, uh, like, four chapters of this thing, almost five. Uh, and and it's, it's all been in this idea of being united with Christ, uh, one with the Lord. And, and, uh, and then it's, it's kind of funny to me how we get to this back end of it. We're going to be in uh, chapter five, Ephesians. Uh, it it's kind of funny because as we get to the back end, there's some very practical things that are going to happen. And, and, uh, and, and, and it's almost as if to say the first four chapters are all about being united with Jesus, be one with Jesus, be one with Jesus. And then as if, as if God's going to tell you now, like what we're going to talk about today, uh, the one of these areas where you cannot be necessarily united with Jesus, because if, if there's ever going to be a place that's going to cause a divide, it's going to be here. And uh, uh, what we're talking about today is, is spiritually guided relationships. Uh, if anything can make you the devil real quick, another person can. And uh, I think it's funny that he spends a little bit of chapter 5 in the first part of chapter 6 talking about how you should be in relationship with each other before he talks about the armor of God. Like, hey, you should be like this with each other, but just in case you're not, remember the armor of God. You know, I mean, uh, uh, by the way, if you're going to have friends, you kind of need the armor of God. <laughs> If you're going to be in a marriage, you need the armor of God. Uh, if you're going to be in any relational uh, uh, connection whatsoever, you need these things. And so it's kind of funny to me how Paul sets up his letter, like how it's written. I mean, it's constantly this theme of united with Christ, the first four chapters. But here he's going to slam home this idea of relationships. And so this is where we're going to pick up in Ephesians chapter 5. And this is probably going to be the most helpful and practical thing we talk about uh, and the entire thing. It's cool talking about the armor. I know a lot of us like talking about that, and I've heard years and years of sermons preached on that. Probably not going to end up preaching anything new to you on it. But if anything, this, this, this section right here is going to be uh, a very nice because uh, it's a simplistic call to Christian living. It's a simplistic call to, uh, uh, of cultivating godly relationships. And God has called you to not only love him, but love his people. Therefore, you are called to be a people in relationship. So if we start out in Ephesians 5, verse 21, the very first verse gives us this, this like simple uh, general purpose uh, uh, that, that uh, creates this foundation for everything else we're going to read today. And it starts like this, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And now the sentence kind of stands alone, and depending on what translation you got, it, it pretty much is alone. You know, King James separated every verse individually, but when you look at some of the others where they paragraph it out, a lot of times this one kind of sits above it all and just kind of sits there, right? And, and, and maybe it's an example because there's a weightiness to this thing that uh, Paul's trying to like expound from. Uh, and from verses 22 all the way into the next chapter, he's going to explain basically what this sentence means. 
He's kind of breaking down, like this sentence is this. It's kind of one of those neat parts in Scripture where you're trying to understand one, one little verse, and, and you find out, like, man, this thing has so much in it. And when you start to tear it apart in the Greek and Hebrew, you're like, oh, I can't convey it all. It's that's everything that's there. Well, that's kind of how it is, right? So it's a good reason right here that we're going to slow it down. We're going to just spend a little time with it and, and, and check out your Bible here as we're going through some things that are said in the Word of God that have got this deeper truth and, and we just got to stay with it. So this call to submit is a call basically to serve and a call to lead. And the motivation behind it is simply out of respect and love and gratitude to Jesus Christ who ultimately has saved you. Now, I think the reason you see Paul go into a, like an in-depth look is because this might be one of the messiest areas of the church. You know, I've said it before. I think I know why we don't have potlucks all the time. Because one thing's for sure, if you hang out with each other enough, eventually you do get sick of something. You, get, you start to pick on everybody's idiosyncrasies, the things that bother you. And if you're not careful, you'll let those little tiny things, right, that bother you somehow hinder something that could be great. It's like you let the 10% mess up the 90. You have a tendency to do that, you know, and, and we tend to get like irritated, like we're having a bad day and then some, somebody's smallest little flaw becomes the thing. But here's the reason you know the flaw, because you have a relationship with them. Otherwise, if you didn't know them, you wouldn't understand it as a flaw. You would, th you know, you don't understand when somebody has a bad day if that's your first impression. So when you know somebody, relationships are messy. The, the irony is the early church, anytime they had church, church was never like we understand church today. It was a meeting where we got together, more like our Wednesday nights here where we got together. We, we read the Word of God. We study the Word of God. We have a meal together. We, we join in as a family together. That's all messy. Maybe that's why we have so many letters and epistles from Paul, because the church is messy. Why? Because... It's predominantly full of relationships, relationships. Now, when we subtract that out of the church, we get a church that, first of all, has no relational connection, uh, but it's a lot prettier because there's less problems. And so that, I think that's the reason we've done that, because truly as a pastor, I mean, think about this for the job of ministry or for those who've been in ministry. It's totally easy when I don't have to have a worry about a fight happening or any kind of weird issue, messy st messiness stuff happen, except when we have like a potluck where all these people are in the same room. Because outside of that, if you come and listen on Sunday morning, it ain't like you're talking to each other right now. So I have your full attention so you don't have to engage each other, right? The only time you really engage each other is in a potluck scenario where we're all eating together and that's where problems can arise. So if I subtract that out, I've got less problems now. But that is that gospel. Is that what we're called to do? How can we ever truly uh, learn to love others if we don't first start spending time with others? <laughs> we have to learn to love like even the flaws, like we love our children's flaws. Come on, some of us don't even see our children's flaws. Everybody else sees them. But we don't. Why? Because we love them. We love them. By the way, aren't you glad Jesus loves you? Despite your flaws, right? So this is a calling, and I think the reason you see Paul going to depth looks is because it's, it's messy, and anytime you get people together, there's issues. Connections, relational connections are messy. And I'm willing to gamble that all of us has had a bad experience with friends, possibly spouses, and even family members. You know, we, we were uh, laughing with Michael, Michael and, and Brittany are at a family reunion, and, and my kids are like, we never do family reunions. I was like, yes, there's a reason. <laughs> there's a reason. I mean, and, and I'll be honest with you, I think maybe a lot of it's just because I didn't grow up going to them. My parents moved out on a little bitty acreage, and man, when, when my grandparents died at such an early age, when my grandparents were alive, we went to 
Christmases and all these cousins would be there and all I mean that this this older group tend to held everybody together and, and one of the things that to, today or at least for us that happened my my uh, uh, dad's dad died when he was 18 uh, by the time I'm in middle school all of my, the rest of my grandparents are, have already passed on either cancer uh, early on and like my my mom's mom died in 50s she was 51 or 52 out of cancer her dad died at 60 so by the time my mom's 35 she has no more parents yeah. So like, guess what? I never saw aunts and uncles. I never saw cousins. My, uh, truly, in my life, my friends have become my family. Really. They've become the family I go see, I hang out with. The people I make connections with as I move through life have become the people who are uh, my family. Because I don't have any relational connection to people who come from my bloodline. I just don't. So <laughs> Why is that? Because there were some messy things that happened amongst my, my mom and her siblings when all this stuff took place, and it just was like that. So things, it's like this, right? There's just nothing easy about a relationship. Nothing. Not even sibling relationship. Nothing easy. Now, some of y'all laughed. I saw you. my brother posted a, a picture of some, like, literally another guy, like, trying to help somebody, and this thing is poked in his eye, and it's like, listen, uh, I'm sorry, don't tell mom, you know, it's like, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I barely touched it, you know, that's about the relationship, my brothers, we have that relationship, but it's messy, right, and, and every time we enter a relationship, we're challenged, man, we're challenged to grow, we're challenged to become, become more than what we are, and maybe that's why the motivation must be Christ at all times, maybe that's why Paul spends so much time talking about united with Christ, united with Christ, you better be united with Christ if you're going to engage loving others, because you're going to need his grace and forgiveness to do so, right? I mean, by the way, you're forgiven according to the measure you forgive, so when you're thinking about bitterness, and I ain't never going to be their friend, I hate them for the rest of life, and I hope they get everything that's coming to them, uh, Jesus uh, says, by the measure you forgive, right, it shall be given, forgiven unto you, right? I mean, so we have to understand reciprocity there. Paul spent the better half talking about becoming united Christ so we could just deal with this right now. So let's, let's press in, okay? Verse 22, and we'll just we'll kind of break it down into sections. So we're going to talk about uh, uh, wives right off the bat. We'll address it little bit by little bit. Talk about wives. Ephesians 5, 22 through 24 says this, For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church he is the Savior of His body, the church, and as the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Now, funny story, I remember listening to a man who was trying to pick up the Chinese language uh, of Mandarin. Uh, by the way, if you didn't know that, uh, the Chinese don't speak Chinese. That's kind of, uh, I don't know why people think that, but they don't. There's like, there is no, like, hey, you speaking Chinese? Uh, no, because there's no Chinese language. It's Mandarin. That's what they speak, okay? Um, and so he's trying to pick up on this uh, Mandarin, and the only person he can find to teach him as he's in China is this female uh, a woman who's able to teach him, and she teaches him a couple phrases to say, and he wants to be able to talk a little bit, so he picks up on these phrases. And so when he goes to these guys, and he begins to speak in these phrases, and, and, he, and he says this whole like paragraph, they start laughing at him. And he's like, oh man, what did she, what did she teach me? And it wasn't what he said, it was how he said it, because in Mandarin, there is a female tone to the speech. So the way men talk and women talk in Mandarin are two different things. So when he began to speak, they were like, oh, he's speaking like a girl. 
I mean, like to the other guys he was talking to, they immediately start laughing because uh, they could tell that this guy has been taught by a woman how to speak because now everything he says is in the feminine tone. And so he was like, man, it was embarrassing, really, really embarrassing. You know, here he is trying to talk and trying to say everything, and he's saying everything like a woman, you know, and he's a man. And so it's really funny. But I, 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 listen, I bring this up for a reason, because when you study Greek and you begin to look at the words that are there, the word submit here is a little bit more complicated uh, than just meaning loyalty and to serve. All right. Like it's easier for us to pick on this uh, word a little bit. Hey, you should submit. Right. I mean, like, guys, we can be like, yeah, submit. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, But it's not like that. Right. The tone of this word is used completely in right. The feminine tone. All right. So it says basically it is not I'm asking you to submit as a mindless, meaningless slave. It's more of submission through a mothering or nurturing kind of enduring thing. It's a different way. It's a different idea. Submit as one does like a like a like mothering something or nurturing something. I need you to be committed to nurturing this thing is what it's saying. I mean, the bar is kind of set a bit high, though. You're you're supposed to submit as you would if it was God himself, God himself. And I know we don't we don't do a good job on that part. Uh, But this is the bar is to say that you're to serve your husband like you would just serve Jesus. And you are to daily <clears throat> seek to improve your walk. As you daily seek to improve your walk with the Lord, you're supposed to daily seek to improve your ability to be a wife. It's a constant improvement. I mean, you're not instantly great, you know? It's not like instantly you got this wife thing. I get that, right? But you're constantly improving. You're constantly getting better at it. I can tell you that the wife I had at year one and two is not the wife that I have at year 20. It is not even close. The wife I have at year 20 is so much more capable, so much more uh, incredible than the wife I had at year one and two. The wife I had at year one and two wouldn't even speak hardly. Man, it's like she barely eat anything. She never went to the bathroom. And she, she was so shy. She would never talk about her issues or her problems. She would, I mean, it was like there was, there was this still, even though we're together and we're married, there's this still, we don't know each other. We're having to like figure this thing out. Like, we know we love each other, even though we don't know all these things about each other. And so we're having to learn each other, right? She's different now than she was then. Paul also takes the time to establish who's the head of the house right here. He says, as Christ is the head of the church, the husband should be the head of the house. Now, I've shared this with you. For me personally, it didn't start out this way. I struggled early on with a moral compass. I didn't know Jesus I didn't care about Jesus. I didn't care about God. I did whatever I wanted and whatever seemed pleasing to me. And and here's the thing is, man, I'm glad she didn't give up on me or become bitter because I wasn't fulfilling that role. I needed time and I needed a lot of prayer. And too many women today, they want love and a great man, but they don't want to contribute to the idea of the man and the woman becoming one. And I think too many women go into a relationship with some kind of false ideology. They think they're going to change their husbands, which I'm going to tell you right now, the only thing that can change uh, your spouse is God. Just straight up. And listen, the godly woman, the Proverbs 31 woman, knows this. 
and she knows her place accordingly. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 14 and 16. For the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage, and the believing husband brings holiness to his marriage. Don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? And you, don't you husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you? So in the beginning, it began, It started with joy. my spiritual compass being horrible, not a great husband. I loved her, yes. I was committed, yes. But how could I lead if I, if I can't even understand what the head of the household is? I don't even know who actually leads the head, right? I didn't know Jesus at this moment. But she does. She, she helps press upon me. Like, it might seem unfair that she's like, well, she's nagging me to go to church. Yeah, because she wants me to be a better man. She knows she can't change me, but if she can put me in front of the one that will. She does accept me for who I am. She loved me and said yes to me in marriage. There's not a question, does she accept me? But she, she, has, she knows that if I, me plus Jesus is awesome and will definitely be the man that she would want. Right? So it's not that she doesn't love me, not that she doesn't accept me early on, but she sees what I can be in Jesus. So she keeps trying to put me at his feet. All through my marriage, keep trying to put me in front of Jesus, put me in front of the Bible, put me in front of the Word, put me in front of people who are going to speak life into me. Right? She realizes early on, this is the Proverbs 31 woman everybody talks about. This is what this is. The one who realizes that while things might seem unbalanced, while things might seem unbalanced, that they can pray and they can walk with God and it can determine the outcome of even the marriage. And it can, out, it can determine the outcome of our spouses. I'm the living proof of such things. When Joy, Joy married me, I was nowhere near the man I am today. I'm here today because I have a wife who prayed for me. And she served me even when I wasn't worth serving at times. That's the truth. And I have a gracious, forgiving father who loves me and has gifted me with such a forgiving, inspiring wife. So husbands, here comes your part. This is responsibilities as a man. Ephesians 5, 25 through 30. For husbands, this means love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church, he gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed her by the cleansing of God's word. And in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. Now notice the subtle transitioning here in the terminology. It went from wives are supposed to submit to telling husbands to love. Now I remember talking about this years ago with some close friend of ours and I kind of jokingly had said we were talking about stuff just being funny back and forth and kind of bantering. And I, and, I, and I remember, I was like, well, I'm pretty sure I'd like just Joy to just submit to me like Abraham, or Sarah did to Abraham, calling him Lord. Maybe she should just walk around calling me Lord a little bit. And I laughed, and I said, maybe that's what you're supposed to do with Stephen, her husband. And she goes, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'd be happy to call Stephen Lord if, as soon as he treats me like Christ does the church. And I thought, man, okay, that's good. <laughs> submit and love. And listen, before we dismiss the word love as something easier in which to do, I actually think it's quite the contrary. I think it's quite the contrary. It's harder. And it's not for the faintest soul. It takes a man to love. Men get it wrong a lot, but it takes a man to love. Paul expounded on love as he's talking about here to the Corinthians. Some of you know this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to get onto it eventually with Wednesday nights, but let me just start right here. He says this, 4 through 7. Love is patient. 
Man, you better be listening. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. It's not boastful or proud. It's not rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wrong. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices when the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. I'm going to tell you what, that's, I, I wish more stuff like that got written about love than all the crud that I see out there today. The love I see out there in the world today is so shallow, it's no wonder our relationships are horrible. Love is more of a feeling than a commitment. They've messed it up. I mean, think about it. If love never gives up, love never loses faith, love is always hopeful, and love endures through every, not some, every circumstance. <clears throat> the problem never is did we love. The problem is we never loved good enough. Our, our view or love or our ability to love becomes, when it starts to get painful, we have to make a decision. We can quit it, right? Which, by the way, if you quit it, is that love? And that, that needs to be a question that gets answered. And I think if, if, if we are a person who loves, and we, we, we don't rejoice about it just, but rejoice when the truth comes out, I think when we're able to be honest about how, what our love is or our lack of, you know, and be honest about that, th that's when I think we'll get to the heart of what real love is. Because, man, I could, I could go on forever on that subject alone, and I, I will save that for another time. But it's, it's usually here that I lose a majority of people who think they've got an understanding of what love is. They just don't. I mean, this isn't kid stuff. That stuff is hard. It's really hard. I mean, love might just be the hardest thing that we'll ever commit ourselves to, ever. But the thing about love, and here's what we do understand, the reward is worth it, and we know it. We've had a taste of love. Which, by the way, causes us to sometimes miss love for lust. All right? That love and lust sometimes seem to go hand in hand. By the way, love lasts forever. Lust doesn't. You know, I tend to, when I had to teach uh, teenagers a lot, that was an easy circumstance for me. Well, I love him. No, you don't. You don't. Love is enduring. Love commits forever. You can't love and then not love all of a sudden. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't do that. Can, can you imagine, if love does that, then what does, how does Jesus love you then? Could his love all of a sudden be revoked? I mean, wouldn't that be possible? None of us want to think about that. <laughs> if Jesus is love personified, does Jesus ever give up on you? Does Jesus ever not love you? So that's what I'm saying. Is you think which one's harder, submit or love? Uh, I think love is harder. Love says, no matter how bad it gets, I stick it out. No matter what I feel, I stick it out. Because I can feel one way right now. Here's what I do know. I've had, this, this past weekend, Jared will tell you, like, I think it was Friday, I had a bad day. My attitude was not great at work. <laughs> and, uh, but you know what? That's just one day. And the next day you come back and you try again. But love doesn't give up. It keeps pushing and pressing on. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to stop. We will get through this. This is one day. We will, this will be tomorrow. Love, love doesn't hold any wrongs, right? It pushes past those things, and we keep moving on. That's the goal, right? Love is hard. Love completely kills off all selfishness. 
I mean, there's no way you can desire and aim for love without also killing off every selfish desire you have inside at the same time. Love is not about you. Love is worrying more about them than you. It's unselfish. Love makes the both of you better because it makes you like Christ. And isn't that the goal? Isn't that what he's been talking about for four chapters? That's the whole idea. That's why it's reminding the wife, who's the head? Christ is the head. Husbands, what are you supposed to be? The head. Then it's important that you be like Christ. And the only way to be like Christ is to love like him. So when there's neglect or there's areas that are troubled in the marriage, I need you to be forgiving. I need you to look past it and forget about it. Which, by the way, is an awesome feat for guys because we are notoriously easy to walk off the next day and be fine. Now, women, this area you need to practice on. Don't lie. I mean, you, you'll bring up an argument five years later. Like, dude, I was, I, I forgot all about that. <laughs> we, we, we like get punched in the face by our best friend. It's like, well, that was yesterday. We're best friends today. He punched you in the face. All right, we're friends. <laughs> Guys like slough that stuff off. It's a wonderful trait. It is, but it ain't easy. There are some wounds in guys that you can get to guys that would make guys like that too. Women know how to do it too. But the goal is to be like Christ. You see how this is all kind of functioning together here? Right? Paul says Christ is the bar, guys. He's, Christ loved the church so much that he gave up his life for her. Not about you. You're, you're to give it all until you got nothing left and then even then give it to death. Right? He valued her more than his own comfort and well-being. It's about what she has first and foremost. Is your family taken care of even before you? I think about all these songs I've been listening to lately, talking about the coal mines. And and uh, I've been listening to this song about you know working coal mines in Harlan and Kentucky and talking about how uh, uh, I think it was Patty Loveless telling this story about her grandpa who tried to get out of the coal mines, trying to do something else, and ended up when times got hard and everything was rocky, the one thing he had to do is go back and work in those coal mines. And they talk about how these guys never left the coal mine, really. I mean, they end up dying of black lung disease, but why are they going to doing it then? Because somebody's got to take care of the family. That's love, man. That's love. Desire, Christ desired that her appearance and countenance be inspiring to all who looked upon her. That's why it was important. He didn't just want her to have the best wife. He, man, I want to make sure all you know she's the prettiest thing on the block. I want you to see my love on her. Her physical beauty, right, is a reflection of my love for her. He did whatever it took to make it happen. In doing this for her, he bene it benefited him. Why? Because she was his wife, man. The church is his wife. He, in her beauty, we see his glory. Look at Ezekiel 16 when he talks about it. He arranged her like a queen. It says, all the nations looked at you like a queen. And I love my favorite phrase, and rightly so. For that's what you were. Right? Christ loves the church like he loves himself. And this is a powerful statement. Just as Christ is guaranteeing his reign forever, he's also securing an eternal place for his bride as well. He isn't going anywhere without her. And she is going to look incredible, too. Look at, look at what Christ says when you think about it between a husband and wife. When he looks out to his bride and he says, listen, I'm going away. 
but I'm going to send my spirit so that I'm with you always, right? You will lack in nothing. Remember, he goes on to say this, and he says, listen, and when I go away, here's what I'm doing. While my spirit's working with you where you're at to make you beautiful, right? My spirit is going to be your cover-up, girl, right? And then all of a sudden, I'm going to, I'm going to go over here, and, I, and while you, my, my spirit is with you, making you gorgeous, getting ready for the marriage day, I'm going to go build a place where I can hold all of us in here together. And I'm going to stage in this place, and we're all going to be right here. And everything is going to, everything is going to, it's okay. Boy, I think they ducked their head and ran. But God is going to go prepare a place while his wife is being beautified. Man, this is a call. Right. And all of this culminates to Paul's conclusion there in verses 31 to 33, where he says, as the scripture says, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united in one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So I say again, each man must love his wife if he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. We're joined together and we're united with Christ. The marriage union is supposed to be an illustration of all this, this idea that Christ has left the Father and the Holy Spirit. He comes down to be united with his church, right? So that he can be eternally united with his church, right? So the marriage union, when you see someone married, it's not just for the sake, well, God created marriage. and Listen, marriage, everything is created for God's glory. Marriage is created to show you what the head, of the, what the head looks like, Jesus being the head and his body being the church. When that thing comes together, you're supposed to see that in me and joy. Our, our marriage union should show you what the union between the church and Jesus should look like. Think about all the qualities we've been talking about here between relationships and that end. I'm supposed to be the head. I'm supposed to have love. The things I'm existing, I'm supposed to love her like Christ loves the church. Why? Because this is, it's a symbolic way to show you the gospel. Marriage is a symbolic way to show you the gospel. Thought it was about you, right? So the marriage union is this big illustration. And just as the marriage is sealed with intimacy, so is our relationship to Christ. This is why the value of prayer is so high. Our prayer time is our intimate moment between God and ourselves. When we lack prayer in our marriage with God, people begin to question our love for him. Teenagers, put your, put your ears on. It's the adult stuff. It's a straight truth. When they're lacking intimacy between spouse and spouses, right? It's obvious. You can tell people, man, that just quit loving each other. You can tell people that don't even like each other. You can tell that after a while. If you look, if you know what they're looking at, you know. And most people are pretty good at spotting out that kind of stuff. They can spot that kind of stuff. Just like they can spot it when you're not walking with Christ. Listen, if you're intimate with God, you'll bear the fruits of intimacy. Just like if you're intimate with your spouse, uh, welcome, that's how kids happen. When we maintain this unity, we, we present an accurate, an accurate picture of uh, not only a godly marriage, but it also a oneness with Christ that has the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit all together. We reveal this unity, this unity. And the last verse is a call to 
remember uh, this truth because Paul repeats himself, which he, he brings up a great point I've heard preached before. Any truth worth preaching once is worth repeating over and over. So he just like kind of reaffirms the last little bit, right? So let's move from marriage to raising kids. No stone is left unturned by Paul. He, he, he's going to talk about kids now. This is the fun part, right? Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Man, this stuff is hard. Everybody says, well, the Bible's the book to do it. Listen, I'm not sure the Bible teaches us everything. It gives us a good like, platform to start from. And then like a lot of this is you're just going to have to figure out. <laughs> I know a lot of people like to say, well, it's all in there. I don't know that it's all in there. Like, I, I, If it was all in there, we wouldn't have denominations. If it was all in there, there'd be no argument over translations. If it was all in there, there wouldn't be a lot of these things. So I, I, but I think it gives a good platform. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you will have a long life on earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that come from the Lord. So from submit to love, for children now to obey right? Some are like, yeah, uh-huh, this whole table, right? There's a specific task for each person in the family unit. Why use the word to obey? Can I tell you that obey is like the truest form of love? When, when God talks to Sammy, he says, man, I, it's not sacrifice I want. I want obedience. I want obedience, right? God desires it. But this command isn't just so you'll do whatever your parents are saying for the sake of just being their kid. No, Paul reminds us that this carries with it a promise from God. Listen, he says, if you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you and you will have a long life on earth. There is a consequence to that action. If, if you'll behave, right? Do I need to come talk over here more for you? If you'll behave, <laughs> things will go well. Are you listening over there, Reagan? Hiding behind the pillar over there. Things will go well for you, well for you, and you will have a long life on earth. As a child, you are literally deciding your own fate in the realm of reciprocity. What you sow into your relationship with your parents is ultimately going to decide your life in the future. You'll ultimately reap what you sow. And, uh, and, and here's the thing. I, I wonder if this is where like the mother's curse comes into it. Yeah, you treat me that way right now. Wait, you're going to have a kid just like you. Yeah, mother's curse, right? I totally got to bypass that one. I don't know how. Jesus breaks curses, guys, I'm telling you. Breaks them. I'm the proof. I have good kids. Most of the time. They're a lot better than me, I'm telling you. So as my kids are, you know, Rachel's coming back from Italy, and she's been to Austria, and she's good grades. I'm getting ready for college, and I didn't go to college. It was horrible grades, and I'm, and I'm like, we're getting ready to talk about the legacy banquet and all these things that are like for the just smart kids, and, and I just felt so bad. Like when I talked to my parents, I've said this before in here, like, I'm sorry. And they're like, what for? I'm like, I just was a horrible kid for you. You didn't get to experience anything cool with me except the principal's office. <laughs> just a horrible kid. You just like spent most of your time beating me, you know? Like, and that was like it. Like, you know, if spare the rod, spoil the child means if you didn't discipline, you didn't love, I know you love me. <laughs> A lot. Right? Here's the funny thing about that, though. The kids clause right there at the end, basically saying how we as parents, specifically dads, 
have some part to play in this with our kids. In the same breath, Paul exhorts all fathers to treat their kids right, to treat them with kindness and respect. You want me to go over that table now? That's only fair, right? Not provoking rebellion from them. After all, how you treat your kids just doesn't just determine their future. Listen up. It determines yours, too. It determines yours. Lastly, slaves and masters, <laughs> or as I like to call uh, parents and kids again. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, em- employees, employers, basically, the workplace. We don't have slaves anymore, at least not in America. I think they do in other places but not in America. Uh, So let's talk about the workplace a little bit. Paul's dealing with his generation and time, so it's slaves and masters. When you hear that, that's just kind of how it is. Um, But again, for us, it's more like a workplace, employees, employers. Ephesians 5, or is it 6, 5 through 9? 6, 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you're working with the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember that you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. I love that last little part, right? He didn't play favorites. So slaves or employees, I like to call my kids that sometimes, uh, are, are to serve with deep respect and fear. Deep respect and fear. And it's an interesting translation here. Um, it's not exactly like you would think at when you look at this, these words. Like when we say deep respect, you know, like you just, harder, it's hard to respect some, some people. I get that part. And I don't know about fear being the great motivator. Uh, so these words that we're using here in the English language, I don't think they really do it credit. And if you start to look it up in the Greek, that phrase, deep respect and fear, describes this. The anxiety of one who distrusts his own ability to completely meet all the requirements. Sound about right? I don't know if I can serve in deep respect. And like, I don't even like this guy. Like, I don't know if I can do it. Then it says this, uh, completely meet all the requirements, but religiously does his utmost to fulfill his duty. So it's, He's saying, I acknowledge, like, it's hard to serve these people. I get that, right? I'm not sure that I can do a great job at it, but I'm going to give my best at it. That's what this means. That's what this means, right? So, like, when we see it, it's like, Paul, you just make it sound so easy. Well, that's because our uh, translation's horrible, okay? Because that's what he means. What, what, he, uh, what he means is when you really look at the Greek and you look at the words as it's structured, what he's saying is like, it's hard. I, it's very difficult. I struggle to do it, but I'm trying with everything in me to be better at it. So as a worker, as an employee at where I work, I don't always have good days last Friday or whatever. Saturday, try to make up for it best I can. Next week, for sure, I'm going to try to work harder. At it. I'm going to work and work harder at being Christ at my job. Why? So I can influence those who I work with. Why? Because I love Jesus and I believe if Jesus is my joy, Jesus is my happiness, Jesus is my passion. And I want everybody to have that same thing. We're to do our very best. 
And don't think that employers are off the hook either, right? Because they have responsibility to treat people, right? They're to work hard and make sure that their employees are taken care of and serve them in the same manner, in the sense like, even as an employer, you might not be able to do everything, but you're supposed to try. You're supposed to try. You might not do it all, but that, listen, it's okay. You're just to do your best. Take care of your people like you'd want to be taken care of as you was working, right? I've worked for some people that, man, this slave talk would have been right up their alley. I mean, like you didn't want to work for them. I mean, these are horrible type employers. And I've worked for some people that make me think, man, if I ever become a boss, that's how I'm going to be. I mean, it's amazing the influence that a good employer can have on you. By the way, you're going to spend like 40 hours a week with them. <laughs> Choose your job wisely. If you hate your job, oh my gosh, leave it. I'll be the first one to tell you. How miserable are you going to be the rest of your life at a job that you hate? You know, I, I can't imagine. Well, I do. I do know how hard it is to be at a job you don't like and try to come home and be happy. Because you start living for being home and not for doing anything else. Like this isn't going to be my legacy. But I'm spending 60 hours a week at it. That's horrible. Like, if, if I want to love what I do, and, and what I have found in my own personal life, I'll tell you in this, is that I think the best gift I could give to my kids was a happy father. The guy who could come in and be happy about being here, happy about life, happy about everything, happy about my job, happy about this, happy about that. Man, it allows me to bring a, 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 to a, a, a spirit of joy into my house that is able to help us when it is hard times, you know, because our hard times, we can, we can beat this together because predominantly we're a happy house, right? So our hope is that as two people find each other, they'll find love, they'll work hard and to love according to the scriptures and intimacy when they conceive a child that they'll also raise it and love it according to the scriptures to ultimately grow up and live by the scriptures. You see how this works? Like you see the progression. Paul says two people meet, right? Wives deals with husbands, two guys, a guy, they meet, right? They come together. When you raise children, raise your kids like this, right? When your kids are old enough, I love how it deals with this. Kids are old. This also applies uh, to you as parents. Uh, when you're working, work like this, Right? I mean, that's the idea that this section of how we deal with relationships in our, with each other, in our marriages, amongst our children, in our workplace, all of this exists to bring hope. All of this exists so that we might showcase the glory of God in our relationships, so that we can live out the gospel and people will see it, right? They'll see it in our family, they'll see it in society. It sets us apart from everyone else. How we live and interact with each other is what sets us apart. No other church in town is going to spend as much time together as we do. We don't do that for the sake of that. We do that because that's what the book of Acts shows us. The Bible shows us that people spend time together. They grew together as one. There was this, the church was strong in the beginning because the church was full of families that hung together. They were a tight-knit group. They were a tight-knit group. They were meeting in homes. They were meeting in each other's houses. I love it when Jesus, Jesus wrote this, and I think this really expresses this. They said he did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she would be holy and without fault. This is why God is working in our relationships, right? It's the grinding stone. It's grinding us around. We're moving. We're hitting each other all the time when we're talking and hanging out, right? It's so the gospel can be lived in the world. 
right? It's lived in our marriage, individually lived in us, and then lived in our marriage. And in our marriage, we showcase what Jesus looks like married to the church so that when, we, when, when people are looking for the gospel, they look at a married couple and go, do I see the gospel? First of all, I mean, do I see the gospel in you? Do I see you acting and looking like and, cre- and being, as Paul would say in the first four chapters, do I see you united with Jesus? Do I see you united with Christ? Are you behaving like Christ? Are you acting like Christ? Are you producing the fruit of Christ? And then as you get together and become a, a couple, okay, now when I look at your marriage, do I see the symbolic effect of somebody who's the head of the house being married to the, the bride, right? And are they taking care of the bride like Christ takes care of the church? Because I'm now modeling the union of Christ and the church together in my marriage. You see that? You see how it's taking place, right? And then how I treat my children is modeling how Christ treats his children, right? You see how that works? So it all points back to the gospel, Right? And as we head to Easter, it's even more important that everything really, that you get this realization that everything comes back to Christ. Everything points to the gospel. There's nothing you read in the Old Testament ever that wasn't a point or painting of a picture to what the gospel was going to be. And all our relationships, husbands, wives, children, even in the workplace, everything is pointing back to the gospel. So the question, I mean, as we get ready to go to worship, things I want you to be thinking about is, are we struggling here? Are you struggling here? And I think most of us struggle uh, at different times and places in our lives, in our marriages, our children, our friendships, and even our workplaces. Man, they need to set our best. They need to set our best. And when we struggle to meet Jesus, especially at the place of intimacy, at the place of prayer, it affects everything in our life. Right? One of the things that, I'm, again, you're going to hear me start talking more and more about, right, is, is we're going to have to start praying more. Praying is going to help our marriages because as, as we grow closer to Christ and intimacy with Christ, intimacy with each other is going to happen because we're supposed to love Jesus and who? Love everyone else. Love vertically, and that will allow us to love horizontally. That's the whole trick, right? So when I love Jesus, I can love my wife. When I love Jesus, I can treat my kids with respect and love them and forgive them and model what love is. If men, listen to that, if, if, if we're supposed to love our wives like Christ did the church, we are the model of love before our children. We are the model for that, right? It's such huge responsibility. And as we model that to our kids, our kids are raised in a, in a Christ in a Christ-like cradle that allows them to see the gospel, see what it's supposed to be like, so they carry this on. That's the whole purpose of it. That's the whole purpose, right? And so when we're intimate with Christ, we'll produce the fruit of those things. But it starts with intimacy with God first. And we have to start, we're going to have to start being a, a place of prayer. God called this house the house of prayer, not the house of worship, as popular as it is. Not the house of preaching, as popular as those guys can be. He called this place the house of prayer. In the house of prayer, there are no superstars. There are no superstars. You've all heard of the Sousa Revival, but very few of you know actually the name of the man who started the prayer. Because it's not about him. Sousa was never about him. Sousa was about God wanting to pour himself out. You never heard of the guy who started the Welsh Revival, the college kid, because it was not about him. 
It's about God. It's about God wanting to do a greater thing upon mankind. But it all starts in intimacy. Revival, a city change, starts with intimacy. It won't affect just us, guys. If we begin to pray, it's not going to affect just us. No, it'll affect every church in town. It'll affect every place in town. From now on, it'll be like if revival really comes here, what you'll do is you'll go across the street, and as you eat at Super Taco, all you're going to hear about is people singing songs about Jesus and talking about God and talking about things like that. Why? Because the whole city begins to be changed. There begins to be great conviction. I've almost wondered, you know, if you've ever go back and you read anything about the Welsh revival, one of the greatest things that I think maybe the greatest detour of the reason revivals don't come in the Welsh revival, one of the first things he said he witnessed is going into a church and listening to these atrocity of these things that people were repenting for out loud. I'm going to tell you what, it's going to take a great and mighty spirit for us to get to the courage and the place where we can repent out loud. But that comes in intimacy. And by the way, no child is born pain-free. Can I get an amen, women? No child is born pain-free. So do you think that revival is going to be birthed without pain? You think it's not going to cost us something? Do you think your marriage is not going to cost you something? Do you think your kids becoming something? Do you think it's not going to cost you something? It is. That's why uh, God talks a lot about discipline. God disciplines the ones whom he loves. Right? So we understand how this growth process works. In marriage, it's almost like two rocks hitting each other all the time until they're smoothed down. You ever seen a rock smoother? That's what they do. They put a bunch of rocks in there and they just roll it until it beats all the edges off. That's marriage, right? Pretty good. Right? That's almost parenting. Mm-hmm. Little rocks in there with the big rocks, just knocking them down. That's about how it is. And guess what? This whole Christian walk is going to be the same thing. Same thing. Difficulty. Come on. Let's get ready for worship this morning.